You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics, and this is Lecture 6, entitled Price, Culture, and Gift, given in Dornach on July 29, 1922. You know, perhaps, that in my book titled Towards Social Renewal, I tried to express in a formula how we may arrive at a conception of true price as we will call it to begin with, in the whole economic process. Needless to say, such a formula is only an abstraction. It is the object of these lectures, which I believe, in spite of the short amount of time, will really form a whole. It is our very object in these lectures to work the whole science of economics, at any rate in outline, into this abstraction. The formula that I gave in my Towards Social Renewal was as follows. A true price results when individuals receive as counter-value for the product they have made sufficient recompense to enable them to satisfy the whole of their needs, including, of course, the needs of their dependents, until they will again have completed a like product. Abstract as it is, this formula is nonetheless exhaustive. In setting up a formula, it is always necessary that it should contain all the concrete details. I do believe, for the domain of economics, that this formula is no less exhaustive than, say, the theorem of Pythagoras is for all right-angled triangles. But the point is that just as we have to introduce into the theorem of Pythagoras the varying proportions of the sides, so shall we have to introduce many very many more variables into this formula. Economic science is precisely an understanding of how the whole economic process can be included in this formula. Today I intend to start from one essential feature of the formula. It is this. The formula does not point to what is past but to what is going to happen in the future. For I say in it deliberately that the counter-value must satisfy the individual's needs in the future, that is, until he or she will have made a like product again. This is an absolutely essential feature of the formula. If we were to to demand a counter-value, literally, for the product that is already finished, if we expected this to be true to the real economic facts, it might well happen that we would receive a value that would satisfy our needs, say, for only five-sixths of the time we need to finish the new product. The economic facts alter from the past into the future. Those who imagine that they can draw up any kind of table from the past will invariably go wrong in economics. Economic or business life essentially consists in setting future processes in motion with the help of what went before. Where past processes are thus used to set future ones in motion, 
it inevitably happens in some cases that the values are completely shifted. Indeed, they are constantly shifting. Hence, in this formula, it is essential to say that, quote, if someone makes a pair of boots, the time taken to make them is not the determining factor in the economic sense. The determining factor is the time required to make the next pair of boots, close quote. That is the point, and we must now try to understand its fuller implications within the whole economic process. Yesterday we brought before our minds the cycle nature, labor, capital, that is capital imbued with the value by with value by spirit. Diagram page fifty five, also diagram page seventy two. At this point, instead of capital, I might just as well write spirit. To begin with, we followed out the economic process in this direction counterclockwise, and we found that at this point, with nature, diagram page 55, E, congestion must not be allowed to occur, but only so much must be allowed to go through as will act as a kind of seed to carry on the process. A state of economic congestion must not be allowed to arise through a fixation of capital in ground rent, as I said, fundamentally speaking, the return for land when it is sold, that is, when land is given a value in the economic process, works in direct opposition to the interests of those engaged in the manufacture of valuable goods. I need to read that again. A state of economic congestion must not be allowed to arise through a fixation of capital in ground rent. As I said, fundamentally speaking, the return for land when it is sold, that is, when land is given a value in the economic process, works in direct opposition to the interests of those engaged in the manufacture of valuable goods. If people wish to manufacture valuable goods with the help of capital, It is to their benefit that the rate of interest should be low. Having less interest to pay, they will be less hampered in their use of the capital they have borrowed. The landowners, on the other hand, I will go fully into these things as they are of economic significance, the landowners, or those who have an interest in the lands becoming more expensive, will be able to make it more expensive simply by a reduction in the rate of interest. If they have a low rate of interest to pay, the value of their land will grow. It will become more and more expensive. By contrast, those engaged in the manufacture of valuable commodities will be able to make them for less because of a low rate of interest. Commodities, therefore, which depend mainly on manufacture, become less expensive when the rate of interest is low. Land, on the other hand, which gives a yield without first having to be manufactured, becomes more expensive when the rate of interest is low. You can easily work it out. It is an economic fact. It would appear, then, to be necessary to arrange for two different rates of interest. We ought to have a rate of interest as low as possible for building the work for the production of valuable commodities, and a rate of interest as high as possible for everything that falls under the heading of land." This follows directly from what we said before. We want a rate of interest as high as possible for all that comes under the heading of land. This cannot easily be carried out, however, in practice. 
a slightly higher rate of interest for capital advanced on land might be practicable, but this would be of little help. A considerably higher rate of interest, say for instance the rate of interest that would keep the land at an ever-constant value, that is 100%, would be extremely difficult to realize in practice without taking additional steps. 100% interest for money borrowed on land would mend matters at once, but it cannot be carried out in practice. In all such cases, the first point is to see with full clarity into the economic process. When we do so, we soon realize that the life of the associations is the only thing that can make the process healthy, because if seen correctly the economic process will lead to our being able to direct it in the right way. In the economic process we must speak, as I indicated yesterday, of production and consumption. We must observe both the producing and the consuming processes. The contrast between them has played a great part recently in various widely held economic theories which in due course have been used for purposes of agitation. There has especially been much dispute of the question of whether spiritual, cultural, intellectual work as such is in any way value-creating in the economic sphere. Those who work out of the sphere of human intelligence or spirit are certainly consumers. Whether they are also producers in the economic sense is a question that has been much discussed. Extreme Marxists, for example, have again and again cited that unlucky fellow, the Indian bookkeeper, who has to keep the accounts for his village community. He does not till the fields or do any other productive work. He merely registers the productive work done by others. The Marxists deny him the faculty of producing anything. They declare that he is simply and solely maintained out of the surplus value that the productive workers create. This worthy bookkeeper is worked as hard in economics as Caius is in the formal logic that we studied at college. Caius's job is proving the mortality of a human being. You may remember, quote, All human beings are mortal, Caius is a human being, therefore Caius is mortal. His everlasting function of proving the mortality of the human being has made him immortal in the world of logic. The same thing has happened in Marxist literature to the Indian bookkeeper, who is maintained simply by the surplus value of the productive workers. He has become a classic. This question is, if I may say so, extraordinarily full of snags in which we very easily get caught when we try to work it out economically. I refer to the question, quote, To what extent, if at all, is spiritual, cultural work economically productive? Close quote. Now, here it is especially important to distinguish between the past and the future. If you consider and reflect statistically on only the past, with respect to the past and to all that is only the unbroken continuation of the past, you will be able to prove that spiritual cultural work is unproductive. From the past within the material sphere, only purely material work and its effects can be held to be productive in the economic process. It is quite a different matter when you turn your eye to the future. As we have said, to be engaged in economics 
is to be working from the past into the future. You need think only of this simple instance. Assume that in some village a craftsman falls ill. Under certain given circumstances, let us say, if he falls into the hands of an unskilled doctor, he will have to lie in bed for three weeks, during which time he will be able to do nothing. Then he will disturb the economic process to no small extent. If he is a shoemaker, for three weeks his boots and shoes will not be brought to market, taking the word market in the widest sense. But now suppose he gets a very skillful doctor who makes him well in a week. He can go back to work again in a week. In all seriousness, you can now decide the question, quote, Who made the boots for the difference of the fourteen days, the shoemaker or the doctor? In, close quote. In reality, it was the doctor. Now the situation is altogether clear. As soon as you take into account the future from any given moment onward toward the future, you can no longer call the spiritual cultural unproductive. In relation to the past, the spiritual cultural, or rather those human beings who work in the spiritual cultural sphere, are consumers only. In relation to the future, they are decidedly productive. Indeed, they are the producers, for they transform the whole process of production and make it substantially different for the economic life. You can see this from the example of a tunnel. What happens when tunnels are built nowadays? They could not be built unless differential calculus had been discovered. To this day, therefore, Leibniz is helping to build all tunnels. The way prices work out in this case has really been determined by that exertion of his spiritual cultural forces. You can never answer these questions in economics if you consider the past in the same way as the future. Life does not move toward the past, nor does it even prolong the past. It goes on into the future. <clears throat> Hence, no economic thought is real that does not reckon with what is done by spiritual cultural work, if we may call it so. That is to say, fundamentally, what is done by thinking. But spiritual cultural work is not easy to comprehend. It has its own peculiar properties, which not, are not at all easy to grasp in economic terms. Spiritual cultural work begins the moment work itself, that is to say labor, is organized. The organizing work of thinking begins the very moment labor itself is organized and divided. Thenceforward it grows, more and more independent. Consider the spiritual cultural work of those who direct some undertaking within the material sphere. You will see that they apply an immense amount of spiritual cultural work. Nevertheless, they are still working with the resources with which the economic process provides them from the past. Even on quite practical grounds, you cannot ignore the fact that the sphere of spiritual cultural activity, if I may not call it, act it activity instead of work or labor, also includes the entirely free kind of activity. When someone invents differential calculus, and even more so when someone paints a picture. There we have a case of entirely free spiritual-cultural activity. Relatively speaking, at least, we can call it free. Whatever materials are derived from the past, the paints and the like, they no longer have the same significance in relation to the eventual products as do the raw materials 
for example, purchased for manufacture. Passing into this region, therefore, we come into the sphere of the completely free spiritual cultural life, see diagram. In this sphere we find, above all things, teaching and education. Those who teach and educate undoubtedly stand within the sphere of the completely free spiritual cultural life. For the purely material economic process, it is especially these free spiritual cultural workers who are, in relation to the past, absolutely and exclusively consumers. Of course, you may say they produce something, and if they are painters, for example, they are even paid something for what they have produced. In appearance, therefore, the economic process is the same as when I manufacture a table and sell it. The process is essentially different as soon as we cease to consider buying and selling by the individual and turn our attention to the economic organism as a whole. And this is what we must do in the present advanced stage of the division of labor. There are also pure consumers of another kind within a social organism, namely the young and the very old. Up to a certain age the young are pure consumers, and those who are on pensions are again pure consumers. Very little reflection will suffice to convince you that if there were no pure consumers in the economic process, mere consumers who are not producers at all, the process could not go forward at all. If everyone were producing, not all that is produced could be consumed, and the economic process would not be able to go forward. It is as if human life is, and human life is not purely economics, it must be taken as a whole. The real advancement of the economic process is possible only if it includes pure consumers. We must now illumine from a different angle this fact that we have pure consumers within the economic process. You see, this circle, again look at the diagram, can be very instructive. We can endow it with all manner of properties, and the challenge will always be how to bring the several economic processes and facts into this circle, which represents for us the cycle of the economic process. Something very important happens when in buying and selling in the market I pay on the spot for what I get. The point is not that I pay for it with money. I might equally well barter it for a corresponding commodity that the other person is willing to accept. The point is that I pay at once. It is this that constitutes paying in the proper sense of the word. Here, once more, we must pass from the ordinary, everyday conception to the true economic conception. In the economic life, several concepts constantly play into one another. The total phenomenon, the total fact, results from the interplay of the most diverse factors. You may think it is conceivable that some regulation should be made so that no one need ever pay cash down. Then there would be no such thing as paying at once. One would pay only after a month or after some other interval of time. The point is that I am forming my concepts altogether wrongly. If I think that someone should hand me a suit of clothes and I pay for it after a month. The fact is that after a month I no longer pay for this suit of clothes alone. 
In that moment I am paying for something quite different. I am paying for something that circumstances, by raising or lowering prices, may have made quite different. I am paying for an ideal element in addition. In fact, we cannot do without the concept of, quote, immediate payment, close quote. This is the concept that holds good in cases of simple purchase. A thing becomes a commodity on the market, moreover, through the very fact that it is paid for at once. This is generally the case with those commodities that are, quote, nature transformed by labor, close quote. For such commodities I pay. Here payment plays the essential part. There must be such payment. I pay at the very moment when I open my wallet and give away my money. And the value is determined in the very moment at which I give away the money or exchange my commodity for another. That is payment. That is one thing that must be in the economic process. The second factor which plays a similar part to payment is the factor to which I drew attention yesterday. It is lending. This, as I said, does not interfere with the concept of payment as such. Lending, once more, is an altogether different fact, a fact which simply exists. If I have money lent to me, I can apply my spirit to this loaned money. I become a debtor, but I also become a producer. In this way, lending plays a real economic part. If I have intellectual, spiritual capacities in some direction, it must be possible for me to obtain loaned capital. No matter where I get it, I must have it. Thus, in addition to payment, there must be loan. See diagram page 72. Here, then, we have two very important factors in the economic process, payment and loan. By a simple deduction, we must verify it here, see diagram, by a very simple deduction you can find the third. You will not doubt for a moment what the third factor is. We have had payment and loan. The third factor is gift. Payment, loan, and gift. This is a real trinity of concepts essential to a healthy economy. There is a prevailing disinclination to include gift in the economic process as such. But if there is not an act of giving somewhere, the economic process cannot go on at all. Imagine for a moment what we should make of our children if we gave them nothing. We are constantly giving gifts to our children. If we consider the economic process as a whole, as a process that goes on and on continuously, gift is part of it. There is no escaping the fact. It is wrong to regard the transfer of values from hand to hand, representing a process of gifting, as something inadmissible in the economic process as such. Precisely this one of the three is found with horror by some people worked out in my book titled Toward Social Renewal. There it is shown how values are to be transferred, how means of production, for instance, are to be transferred to one who has the faculties necessary for managing them further by a process that is really identical with giving. Provision must, of course, be made that the giving is not done in a haphazard way. In the economic sense, they are nonetheless gifts 
and such gifts are absolutely necessary. You will find, more and more, this value transfer to be an economic necessity. The trinity of payment, loan, and gift is there in the economic process. Consider the matter thoroughly and you will agree that in every economic process this transfer must be contained. Otherwise it would be no economic It would be no economic process. It would lead to absurdities at every point. People may rebel against these things for a time, but we must remember that economic wisdom is today not very great. Those especially who want to teach it should be under no illusions on this point. Modern economic knowledge is by no means great. People are little inclined to go into the real economic relationships. This is an obvious fact, so obvious that if you look in today's Basel Nachrichten, the daily, the regional daily newspaper published in Basel, you will find, curiously enough, a reflection on this very fact. Neither governments nor private people nowadays, it says, are inclined to develop real economic thinking. I think we may take it that anything expounded in the Basler Nachrichten is likely to be obvious. It is indeed a palpable fact, and it is interesting to find it discussed in this way. The article is interesting inasmuch as it endeavors to set in a glaring light the absolute impotence that prevails in the economic sphere. Interesting, too, is the statement that these things must be changed. It is time governments and individuals began to think differently. There the matter ends. How they are to think differently, on this you will of course find nothing in the Basler Nachrichten, which is also interesting. It is possible to interfere in the economic process in a disturbing way, if one does not rightly relate the one thing with the other in this trinity. Many people today are enthusiastically demanding the taxation of legacies, which of course are also gifts. Such proposals have no deep economic significance. We do not lessen the value of the inheritance if, say, it has a value V, and we divide the value V into two parts, V sub 1 and V sub 2, giving V sub 2 to some other party, and leaving the legatee with V sub 1. All it means is that the two together will now do business with the original value V. And the question will be whether the one who receives V sub 2 will husband it as advantageously for the economic life as would the original legatee who would otherwise have received V sub 1 and V sub 2 together. One, of course, may settle this question for oneself according to one's own taste, whether a single clever person receiving the whole legacy will husband it better, or whether it will be better for one to receive only part while the state receives the other part so that the individual is obliged to do business in conjunction with the state. This sort of thing definitely leads us away from pure economic thinking. It is a thinking based on resentment, on feeling. People envy the rich air. There may be reason for it, but we cannot look at it only from this point of view if we claim to be thinking in an economic sense. The point is to find the right conception in the economic sense. Whatever else has to be done must take its start from this. You can, of course, conceive of a social organism becoming diseased 
through the fact that payment is not working together in an organic way with loan and gift, since one or the other is being obstructed and one or the other fostered. But they will still go on working together in some way. If you abolish giving on one side, you merely effect a redistribution. And the question to be decided is not whether this ought to be done, but whether it is necessarily advantageous. Whether the individual heir alone should receive the inheritance, or whether it must be shared with the state, is a question that must first be settled on economic grounds. Which is more advantageous? That is the point. The important point is that a free spiritual cultural life arises, almost of necessity, out of the entry of spirit, mind, into the economic life. As a result of this free spiritual cultural life, freedom of mind, there will be pure consumers so far as the past is concerned. But what of free spiritual cultural life, free life of the mind, in relation to the future? Here it is productive. Indirectly it is true, but nonetheless extraordinarily productive. Imagine a free spiritual cultural life in the social organism, really freed, so that the individual faculties are always able to develop fully. Then free spiritual cultural life will be able to exert an extremely fertilizing influence on the half-free spiritual cultural life, that is, on the spiritual cultural life that enters into the processes of material production. Considered in this light, free spiritual cultural life takes on a decidedly economic aspect. Those who can observe life with an unbiased mind will say to themselves that it is by no means a matter of indifference whether in a given place all who are active in the free spiritual cultural life are eliminated, for instance if they were given nothing to consume, the right to live being admitted only for those who work directly into the material process, or whether truly free spirits are allowed to exist within the social organism. Free spirits have the characteristic of loosening and liberating spirituality. They are the inspiration of the others. Their thinking is more mobile, and they are thus able to work into the material process more effectively. It is important to remember that the free spirits are living human beings. You must not try to refute me by pointing to Italy and saying that there is a great deal of free spiritual cultural life there, yet the economic processes that proceed from spirit have not been stimulated to any unusual degree. Granted, it is a free spiritual cultural life, but it is one handed down from the past. There are statues, museums and the like, but these do not have this effect. Only what is living is effective, that is to say, what proceeds from creative human beings and spreads into others who can produce spiritually, intellectually, and creatively. This is what works as a productive factor into the future, even in the economic sense. It is certainly possible to exert a healing influence on the economic process by giving an open field of action to spiritual, creative people. Suppose now that we have a healthy associative life in a community. The task of the associations will be to arrange production in such a way that when there are too many people working in any sphere, they can be transferred to some other work. It is this vital dealing with people 
the process of allowing the whole social order to originate from the insight of the associations that matters. When, one day, the associations begin to understand something of the influence of the free spiritual cultural life on the economic process, we can give them a very good means of regulating the economic circuit. I mentioned this in my book, Towards Social Renewal. The associations will find that when free spiritual cultural life declines, too little is being given freely, they will grasp the connection. They will see the connection between too little giving and too little free spiritual cultural work. When there is not enough free spiritual cultural work, they will realize that too little is being given. When too little is being given, they will notice a decline in free spiritual cultural work. There is then a very definite possibility of driving the rate of interest on property right up to 100% by transmitting as much property as possible in the way of free gifts to those who are spiritually, culturally productive. In this way you can bring the land question into direct connection with what works particularly into the future. In other words, the capital that presses to be invested, the capital that tends to march into mortgages and stay there, must be given an outlet into free spiritual cultural institutions. That is the practical aspect. Let the associations see to it that the money that tends to get tied up in mortgages finds its way into independent spiritual cultural institutions. There you have the connection of the associative life with the general social life. Only when you try to penetrate the realities of economic life does it begin to dawn on you what must be done in the one case or in the other. I do not by any means wish to agitate that this or that must be done. I only wish to point out what is. This is undoubtedly true, what we can never attain by legislative measures, namely to keep the excess capital away from nature. We can attain through the life and system of associations diverting capital into free spiritual cultural institutions. I only say that if the one thing happens, the other will happen too. Science, after all, has only to indicate the conditions under which things are connected. The end of Lecture 6